Hello, and welcome to episode 2.5, the Sam Hain edition of Notes from the Isle Seat, the podcast that covers the arts in northern Chautauqua County, sponsored by the 1891 Fredonia Opera House. My name is Tom Laughlin, and I'm your host as we bring you news and information about arts events at the Opera House and around the region, including interviews with artists and creators across the county. This time of year, nearly halfway through autumn, goes by many names. Sam Hain is the Wiccan name. Other names include Haptuna, Dia de los Muertos, All Hallows Eve, or as we know it, Halloween. In some cultures, this time of year marks the beginning of winter. The trees lose their leaves and the days slowly get shorter and colder. Standard time returns and we delve further into the darkest time of the year. It's a nice time of year to have a mug of hot cider or mulled wine and take in one of the many indoor arts events happening around the region. Here at the 1891 Fredonia Opera House, we have a few for you to consider. First up is a concert featuring cellist Jolian Pegas and violinist Maria Schleining. Both are members of the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, and Jolian is also a member of the Chautauqua Symphony Orchestra in the summer. They'll be performing a premiere of a version of well-known composer David Amram's piece, Partners, a double concerto for cello and violin, written specifically for the duo, with the orchestral part reduced to piano accompaniment. I got a chance to talk to them and discuss the piece with them. Joining me now to give me a little bit of an insight in their upcoming concert at the 1891 Fredonia Opera House on Friday, October 28th, is Jolian Pegas and Maria Schleining. Uh, and uh, they are coming to um, perform in concert uh, a very interesting piece. I don't know much about it, but we'll find out. Welcome, you two. Thank you. Good to be here. Great. Um, so uh, you both uh, currently play, you both hold chairs at the Dallas Symphony Orchestra at this time. And um, you kind of got there, I think, in different directions. So um, I always like to get a little bit of background on musicians when I'm interviewing them, like why they pick the instrument they picked and things like that. So, uh, Jolion, why don't we start with you? You're a cellist and, uh, and also a bit of a local boy, I understand. I, well, it's true. I'm from Rochester and, uh, and I spend my summers at Chautauqua. Uh, I'm a member of the Chautauqua Symphony during the summer. Grew up in a, uh, a family of musicians. And um, as a little kid, I actually started off on the violin. Um, I switched to cello when I was uh, big enough to get into the smallest size cello. <laughs> I just preferred the cello. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of people prefer the sound of the cello. They, there's something very attractive about that instrument, at least. Yeah, and that's what it was for me. I just like the sound. Yeah, the sound is great. Uh, uh, Maria, uh, you're a violinist. Um, where did you pick that up? Um, well, I grew up in Oregon, and my uh, family is not a musical family necessarily, but um, everybody was a lover of music. And um, I guess like Jolian, having sisters, I think, really influenced the fact that I wanted to play something because both my sisters were playing instruments. And so um, violin was chosen for me. Oh. And I, yep, I'm glad I play it. And since it's much more difficult than the cello. I understand why he switched to cello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, point taken. Um, so 
you are coming to the 1891 Fredonia Opera House at, to do a, 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 a piece by um, noted composer David Amram. And for those people out there listening who don't know who David Amram is, he is uh, a, a pretty amazing composer uh, who has uh, worked with all kinds of people as a sideman, um, as a as a uh, film scorer. Um, he's just got an incredible background. And uh, you have a uh, something called Partners, a double concerto for piano, cello, and orchestra. Um, how did you come about to, uh, to to meet him and get involved with him? I met David at Chautauqua when we were premiering his saxophone concerto with the Chautauqua Symphony. And um, uh, he introduced himself to me on stage at the break of a rehearsal, and we started chatting. And um, David is, is a very curious person. He wants to know everything that you're doing and so at the time at the time uh, maria and i were uh, playing a series of uh, the uh, roja double concertos uh with several different orchestras uh of course david knew the piece had been at the world premiere in los angeles back in the 60s uh knew the piece well and um, and the idea was hatched that he would write a double concerto for us hmm. right uh, right at that right at that moment it was that the idea actually was uh, ha happened at the chautauqua institution Wow. Uh, and Maria, did you just go along for the ride or did you just I, get it? I, I, I along for the ride, yes. <laughs> and of course, I, I knew about um, David because I, I had known, of course, that he was the first composer in residence of New York Philharmonic and had a huge background. And um, I've always been interested in new music. So um, Jolianne told me about this and I was right there. Yes, let's do it. Yep. So. Excellent, excellent. I, I, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, hearing that piece. Um, you're also uh, you've done this piece before, obviously, but this, as I understand it from my boss, is a world premiere featuring now a piano, a third piano. So it's a it's a trio now. Is that am I correct about that? Yes, yes. yeah. It's the same piece, but they he's uh, uh, written the orchestral uh, part out uh, in a reduction for piano, so so we can perform it as a piano trio, basically. Yeah, and you're being uh, joined by Russell Miller, I believe. Um, he's from Eastman School of Music. That's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And Russell was actually the uh, pianist that I made my New York recital debut with back in 1990. Oh, good. So, so you got... So we go way back. Well, you know, it's very interesting. Musicians are, are always, uh, you know, I, I imagine it's a smaller world than most of us think. And you guys travel around a lot. You're always playing with this orchestra and that orchestra. Uh, so many influences. You, you meet so many sure. people. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what is it about the double concerto that you that you sort of find uh, uh, fascinating to play? I think that just he, he includes so many um, different musical genres. It's very influenced by, you know, it's all American music and each movement he um, made specifically for musicians that he had worked with or admired. And um, I'll let Julian tell you a little bit about those you have. Yeah, it's, um, he, each movement is a, uh, is sort of a, an homage to um, a different famous pair. So the first movement is called uh, Woody and Pete. That's uh, Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger. The second movement is Prez and Lady movement is uh, Machito and Celia, which is Machito, Grio, and Celia Cruz. Oh. And so, and he, and the funny thing, the thing is he knew each one of these people and, and worked with them. Uh, he considered them all um, friends of his. And so he, uh, the idea of writing a, um, a double concerto with each movement. About musical partners. About musical too. partners. Yes, because he yes. knew that we had a long time partnership playing together, Joanne and myself. So 
it's all very special. It ties in really nicely. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I read his list of the people he's played for over the years and, uh, and written. Long and, list. Uh, it's a long <laughs> list. A long he list. has incredible stories, too. He's just so much fun to listen to. Yeah. Just- and, he, and I just want to let our listeners know that uh, uh, he is now 91 years old. And I guess he's, he's going to be 92 in a month, I think. The other thing I wanted to ask you too about, um, you also belong to, um, I think it's, but this must be an offshoot of the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, Voices of Change, a modern music ensemble. Can can you tell me something about that? I understand it concentrates on new music. Yes, um, it's an uh, ensemble that's been in existence for 48 years now. So it's one of the oldest new music ensembles in the United States. And it focuses ent- entirely on music of our time. So, um, you know, things that were written 20th and 21st centuries. And Maria, by the way, is the artistic director. I was just about to point that out. That she's, <laughs> yes, the, yeah. she's, a, she's the current artistic director of that ensemble. Yes. Right. Uh-huh. What is it about new music um, that, that attracts you? Um, I find it just stimulating because, um, well, I feel like I like to say that, you know, today's, what, what we're writing today is going to be, you know, old music one day. So at one time. <laughs> Mozart was composing new music. And I think there's such an importance um, in it. There's so much expression. There's so much uh, we can discover. I feel like as a musician, it helps me stay fresh, uh, challenges me. There's also something very exciting about being able to work with the composer. And, uh, and we, don't, we, don't, we don't get uh, to do that with so much of our repertoire. Yeah, we uh, can't ask Beethoven why yeah. he did something the way he did. Yeah. <laughs> But with modern composers, you can do that. You can have, you can um, work with them, uh, sometimes make suggestions depending on who they are. Yes. <laughs> I, I know this might be a loaded question, but are there any new music- musicians, composers that you've been working with that you, you think, um, you know, the average classical music lover should be paying uh, a little more attention to? Oh, gosh. I think there's, there's a huge list, believe it or not. There's so many fabulous composers I wouldn't even know where to begin. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there are always standouts in, in every field. I could give you names if you want specific. I'd love names. I mean, that's, that's you know. I, um, if, and again, was... it's my opinion, but um, like I love the music of uh, Stacey Garrup is I one was, that I was going to say Stacey Garrup. Um, yeah. Derek Bermel, he's mm-hmm. another great one. Um, I, I know it's tough for, for new musicians to get hearings and other, you know, for them to have their work uh, uh, find a home um, and uh, get, get a way to uh, to be uh, nurtured. Um, so I, I, I think that kind of work is really important. So I'm glad that you two, and I mean, all over your bios and everything, you you emphasize the, the importance of new music. And I think that that's a, a, a good mission really? to have. I'd love to give you one more favorite. Pierre sure. Jalbert. Okay. Pierre Jalbert. Take a okay. listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> good. Yeah, the reason I'm asking for names simply is because you know it's like okay, now I can look that composer up. I can see what stuff he's on. I can listen to the music if there's if it's there. That's always a a, a big um, advantage to us. Um, what what are your plans for the future after this? I mean, you you probably have uh, tours coming up or or uh, places other other places can see you. What are you what are you interested in working on? What's coming up next? 
Well, I would say after this, we'll be ready for a world tour, don't you think? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're 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 open to things. Most of the time, we're here in Dallas because we do have our symphony jobs and we have our families here. But we're always looking for a little adventure, and this is an adventure for us, um, playing chamber music together and and um, playing some solos together. I think is is just a very creative time for us and uh, something very special that we like to do. It's like what we do in our spare time. <laughs> oh, your spare time. Yes. Well, I know you've been to China, Maria. So that's. Yeah, uh -huh. I have. And my, um, my husband and I adopted our son from China. So yes, um, I love to travel. We've done a lot of traveling and, and that, that's a hobby. Yeah, it is. It's a it's a it's a very nice life. Well, I I don't mean to uh, rush you, but uh, um, I do know that you have uh, uh, some work that you have to do pretty quickly, so we we're able to get this in. So I, I want to thank you for your time um, and your energy. I know the audiences at Fredonia will be looking forward to seeing you in concert on uh, October twenty eighth. I I think the piece is going to be very fascinating, and people are going to uh, really like those combinations of pairs that uh, uh, the composer uh, David Amram has done. So thanks again for to both of you. Uh, for for joining me thank, thank you, you so much, so much. good we to appreciate meet you it. yeah looking oh, forward great jolion pegas and maria schleining accompanied by russell miller on piano will be performing on friday october 28th at 7 30 p.m tickets are 18 dollars for adults 16 dollars for opera house members 10 dollars for students you can call the box office at 716-679-1891 for tickets or get them online at www.fredopera.org backslash tickets. I wish I could lead into the next segment with a little bit of more appropriate music, but it's pretty hard to sneak a piece of Beatles music past the Internet's copyright algorithms. But you'll understand why I chose the piece I did after you get a listen to my interview with Scott Fryman. Scott will be bringing his illustrated lecture, Deconstructing Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, to the Opera House on Thursday, November 3rd at 7 p.m. It was quite fun sharing Beatles stories and information with Scott during our conversation. It's really great to uh, welcome to the program uh, Mr. Scott Fryman. He has very intimidating degrees as I looked at his bio. So <laughs> I think this is going to be a pretty interesting conversation. He has degrees from um, uh, Yale, I believe, uh, computer science and music and a master wow. of music composition from NYU. NYU, there it is. Yes. Also a degree from which, from which came about thirty years later. <laughs> <laughs> so he's pretty well educated. Anyway, welcome, Scott. It's good to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so this is going to be a very, very interesting uh, presentation, I think, for uh, our, our audience here in um, uh, Northern Chautauqua County. This deconstructing. Uh, Sergeant Pepper's the 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 uh, Beatles album, the famous Beatles album. But before I, I really get into that particular aspect of it, I I'm just curious to know um, how you came along to um, create these sets of lectures. This is not the only one you have. You have one on Rubber Solo and a couple of other Beatles albums. How did you come to uh, uh, get the idea that deconstructing Beatles albums was going to be a good idea? Yeah, it's very funny. I had no idea it was going to be a good idea. 
But uh, as many things happen, uh, um, it, it was an accident. Um, I had opened up a, a professional music studio in my house. I invited a whole bunch of people out from the city to come, hope, hoping to get some business. And I thought in order for them to come out to Westchester County, I needed some kind of uh, gimmick, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so uh, free beer was part of it. But also um, I said I would put on a talk on Sergeant Pepper. And that was actually my first talk. I had gotten a hold of a few uh, bootleg tracks and um, but they were fascinating. And I went to some of my Beatles references because I've always been into the Beatles. And I sort of paired up what I was reading with what I was hearing. And I thought, well, this is pretty cool. Maybe some of my music friends will like it. And I had about 30, 40 people in my living room. And I was, you know, 15 minutes into the presentation. And they said, uh, uh, when are you doing this again? When are you going to come teach my college class? There's a theater you need to do this at. And so I just started following up on some of these leads. And it turned into um, something that uh, I got some great audiences. And I got referred to other theaters and other places. And then people started saying, well, you've done Sgt. Pepper. When are you going to do the White Album? When are you going to do Abbey Road? It's like, wow, I guess I have to do more. And so I learned, basically, I learned the same way that I teach the audience. I went in. I listened to the music. I found the early tracks and the outtakes. I found the video clips. I read all the references and the first person accounts. And I put it all together into a presentation that I would want to see. And I share that with, uh, with other people. And it's a lot of fun. The wealth of information about the Beatles is, is probably staggering, I would think. How did you go about choosing you know, which sources you wanted to use to be able to put this, uh, the, these presentations together? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, There are literally thousands of books on the Beatles. In fact, there's a book on books on the Beatles. So (laughs) there's a lot. Um, I started with um, uh, reference guides uh, to the music. So there are some definitive sources on the recording sessions. Um, There's a great book um, by Mark Lewison uh, called The Beatles Recording Sessions. There's a great book um, called uh, Recording the Beatles by... um, uh, Brian Cahoon, um and Ryan, and um, I use those as starting points. And then I, I, I always prefer first-person references. So I read uh, a lot of the autobiographies of the people surrounding the Beatles who were there at the sessions or knew what was going on in the sessions, and then other historical analysis that um, uh, some from some of, of Beatles writers who kind of do their own research as opposed to just reprinting what they they've, they've read. And um, I try and check what I can. A lot of the times the music tells you the truth, right? You know, if someone says there's a flute on the recording uh, and there's no flute on the recording, well, the music doesn't lie. So um, there's a lot of times where I catch errors where people have, have, have um, propagated myths, um, but the recordings don't, back that up. And then there are other times when someone will talk about, you know, something that happened in an early session and I find that outtake and I can hear it. And it's like, wow, this would be really great to share with the audience. So there's a lot of that in my Sergeant Pepper presentation. Uh, you know, I'm actually curious to ask you because I'm of obviously the generation um, where the Beatles were essentially on uh, the background of my youth. Um, uh, 
I saw them on Ed Sullivan when they first came to the United States. And I'm, I'm curious to, to just hear from you with all of your background and all of your research, where you actually place these musicians in the scope of uh, popular music. Yeah. Um, so in, in terms of popular music, um, they are without a doubt uh, the most important band that has existed so far. I mean, there were obviously a lot of precursors to the Beatles, um, and there have been a lot of amazing bands since. But in terms of showing, re really evolving rock and roll from you know fads for the kiddies to serious music uh, with serious lyrics, with serious arrangements and orchestration, um, exploring the recording studio, all of that, the Beatles were kind of at the forefront of, uh, not to mention their impact culturally, you know, with fashion and movies and everything else. But right. in terms of music, um, you can't find a musician today who's not influenced by the Beatles. They may not like the Beatles, <laughs> but they wouldn't be there without them. And that's really, really important. And, and you know, I've studied classical music, I've studied jazz, and there are lots of uh, people you can point to in those genres, as with rock and roll, that show they're not just providing, you know, they're not just doing good work, but they're actually moving um, the the genre forward, moving the, the, the art forward. And the Beatles, there's no question they moved the art forward. If you listen to their first single and you listen to Sgt. Pepper and then you listen to Let It Be, you can hear not only that they evolved, how quickly they evolved, and you can see the reaction of the other groups on the scene to them and the Beatles reactions back to people like Dylan and the birds and Pink Floyd and so forth. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really, um, uh, it really is the epicenter as far as I'm concerned of popular music. It's really where everything comes from. So let's talk about Sergeant Pepper in particular. I remember um, uh, as a high school student, um, that album came out and, it just blew everybody away. It would, nobody expected anything like that. And right. we all played it. We all listened to it. And obviously it seemed to have a story and we all would get together and talk about, well, what is this story? What are the story they're telling, you know, and fierce arguments sometimes about that. And, uh, the, the, and, and in particular, the, the Eastern influence that, that we began to hear it was the first time I ever heard a sitar, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, so talk about that particular, uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about Sergeant Pepper as the turning point in terms of the Beatles, yeah. where the Beatles were going as a group. So historically, if you go back to 1967, the Beatles had announced that they were pulling off the road. They weren't doing live tours anymore. And this was unheard of in this space, right? We, you, you released singles, you released albums with lots of filler, and then you went on the road and you toured. And, um, and the Beatles were, were part of that, although their albums weren't filler, they were on the touring scene. And they had announced they weren't going to play anymore. And so to many people um, and a lot of the press, that meant the Beatles were breaking up because you can't, you can't survive as a studio only band. And when in early 1967, they release the single Strawberry Fields back by Penny Lane or Penny Lane back by Strawberry Fields. Um, it's such a, um, a shock because first of all, the Beatles are still around. And mm -hmm. second of all, what is this music we're hearing with Strawberry Fields in this very psychedelic landscape with weird background uh, noises and drumming and a coda and 
and the voice sounds strange and, and it's beautiful. And then all of a sudden on the other side, you have Penny Lane with the brass and the woodwinds and Paul talking about, you know, Liverpool. And it's like, if that's the single, what is the album going to be like? Right. And so there was a lot of anticipation from people, I think, um, that th this album was going to be something special. And so when it hit, the public, uh, at least Beatles fans, were primed for something that was going to be extraordinary. And luckily, the Beatles didn't let them down. And, and the album, you know, the, the concept, uh, if you will, was that the Beatles could free themselves from being John, Paul, George, and Ringo and perform in any style they wanted. And so you do have Eastern music and you do have psychedelic music and you do have kind of music hall and you have, you know, the the uh, the tremendous a day in the life and you have the sergeant pepper marching band you have all these different styles uh and yet the album kind of feels cohesive it feels like you're going through these different people these different moods um and it's a it's a truly remarkable piece of work is there something central thematically about sergeant pepper that um really does exist uh within the concept of that album so, so I don't think so. A, a lot of people call it a concept album because, you know, it opens with the Sgt. Pepper band and then there's a reprise at the end, which is a very cool idea. But the, the songs, uh, you have to try really hard to draw connections between them. And I've, I've done the same thing you've, you and your friends did, right? Trying to figure out how are these songs connected? How are these characters related? But I think the, the, the overall concept is really let's, let's, write songs and make every song different from the other songs on the album. Um, and, and that is, that was the original idea that Paul had of this band is let's not be the Beatles anymore. Let's pretend we're this other band or, or other types of bands. Mm -hmm. Um, as, as far as looking at the, the, the construct of that album and a couple of their other albums, um, I, I, I did notice uh, in one or two of your um, uh, notes and such on your on your website, um, uh, www.beatleslectures.com, by the way, in case anyone's interested, they will be. Um, that you are you are very sure you're, you're, that that almost every note, every chord change, every lyric is is very very deliberately chosen as to as to opposed to just like walking in an album and you know putting together a bunch of songs and call it good well so i i wouldn't say that actually what I, because there was a lot of, of of accidents that happened in the studio there were a lot of things that um they tried out and they didn't like and they tried out and said yes they made a mistake on a lyric and oh that's kind of funny let's keep that in so what i would say though is that they took tremendous risks and that every note that ended up on the album and every lyric that ended up on the album was something that they wanted to be there, that there was a purpose to it. So it may have been um, a process getting there, mm -hmm. but once it landed on the album, especially an album like Sgt. Pepper, where every note is there for a reason, um, it, it was very intentional. And, and uh, you gotta give a lot of credit to George Martin uh, as well for producing them because you know, his um, his willingness to experiment and Jeff Emmerich, the engineer's willingness to experiment, fit right alongside the Beatles' willingness to try new things. And um, and from that extent, you know, they would do experiments. But when they when they chose what they wanted on the album, you know, that that, that was the agreement they all had that that was intentional. 
Um, so, so, you know, as you said, you were a big Beatles fan and, and uh, really interested in their music. Um, but I, I'm, and it doesn't have to be particularly about Sgt. Pepper, but I'm curious, maybe we can get a little taste of one of the s stories that you tell, one, one that you think is pr particularly fascinating or insightful. I just like to get a little hint of yeah. those kinds of things. Sure. So um, there is a great one on Sgt. Pepper, which um, a lot of people don't don't know. And that is how Jimi Hendrix influenced um, A Day in the Life. Huh. So A Day in the Life, as, as many people do know, is really a combination of a John song and a Paul song. And John wrote, uh, I read the news, um, uh, oh boy, and, and the verses are his. And he didn't really have a chorus or a bridge. And it was came in with the bridge of woke up, got out of bed. And they needed to join those parts together. And there's a piece at the end of Paul's section where it goes back into John's final verse. It's a, a series of ahs. Yes. And it's something which I call uh, in music theory, a, a quadruple plagal cadence. It's basically a descent of a fourth, four times in a row. And if you look back through pop music history, the only time I can find that pre-existing, that, that kind of chord combination is in a song called Hey Joe. Oh, and, yes. Mm -hmm. and hey, Joe, enough, where are you going with that gun in your hand? Exactly right. Okay. And that's um, Jimi Hendrix did a cover of that song. Yes, he did. And he actually performed it on TV. The Beatles had become fans of his very early on. And the next day is when that new connection is introduced in the studio. And not only is it the same chord sequence, it's the same chords, the actual same, you know, C uh -huh. to G to D to A to E, right? I can hear um, it in my head right now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that's really, really very cool. And I, I, I you know, people said, no, that you, you're, you know, that that's far fetched. But no, if you look at the date when Jimmy was on TV and the date when the Beatles were recording a day in life, it's right there. And of course, as many people um, have heard Paul tell uh, the day after Sgt. Pepper was released, they went to see Jimi Hendrix um, in concert and Jimmy opened by playing Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which, you know, blew the Beatles away. So, um, so there was an interesting connection between uh, between Jimi Hendrix and the, and the Beatles. That's really kind of an interesting story. I really like yeah. that one. And if the rest of your lectures are filled with little, you know, uh, tidbits and things like that, that's going to be an extraordinary experience. Um, I'm, I regret, Scott, that this is all the time we have for. I could probably sit and talk to you for hours and, you know, get all my uh, questions answered. But, you know, I probably should attend the lecture just like everybody else and do, and do that same thing. So, uh, listen, thank you very much for your time. Um, I do appreciate it. Uh, I really do um, encourage our audience members to go and check out your website. Once again, www.beatleslectures.com, and you'll find out all kinds of amazing um, things, as well as the fact that you have uh, several uh, DVDs and stuff that people can buy just to be able to see the other lectures and, and get them right in their home. Absolutely. I, and I'm really looking forward to coming to Fredonia. I have lots of lots of great Sgt. Pepper stories to share and some great music, which is the most important thing. That's so uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Great, Scott. Looking forward to having you come. Okay. Take care now. Thanks. Bye-bye. Tickets for Scott Fryman's presentation, Deconstructing Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, on Thursday, November 3rd at 7 p.m. are $15 for adults, $13 for Opera House members, and $10 for students. You know the number. 
716-679-1891 or www.fredopera.org backslash tickets. Here's the arts calendar for the upcoming two weeks. The Ecstasis 2.0 student recitals featuring students from the studios of Natasha Farney and Eleron Avni take place on Thursday, October 27th, beginning at 5 p.m. Admission is free. Donations are gratefully accepted. The second Live at the Met presentation will be a production of Giuseppe Verdi's La Traviata, Soprano Nadine Sierra stars in the role of Violetta, joined by tenor Stephen Costello as Alfredo and baritone Lucas Salsi as his father, Giorgio. La Traviata screens on Saturday, November 5th at 1 p.m. Two local plays continue their runs into the last weekend in October. SUNY Fredonia's Department of Theater and Dance concludes its run of Into the Woods by Stephen Sondheim, from Thursday through Saturday, October 27th through 29th at 7.30 p.m. in the Marvel Theater. Tickets are available at the campus box office at 716-673-3501 or online at www.fredonia.edu backslash tickets. Also, the Main Street Studios continues their run of Evil Dead, the musical on Friday, October 28th at 7.30 p.m. and Saturday, October 29th at the special time of 11 p.m. Tickets are available one hour before the curtain at the door, cash only. The Marion Art Gallery continues its exhibition entitled To See Inside, Examining Prison Architecture. Denver artist Sarah McKenzie explores prison interiors and the impact of the criminal justice system on the incarcerated. The exhibition includes artwork by her students from the University of Denver's Prison Arts Initiative. McKenzie is the recipient of the 2021 Marion International Fellowship. The exhibit runs until November 18th. Gallery hours are available at the Rockefeller Arts website www.fredonia.edu backslash RAC The Lily and the Bird an exhibition of large woodcuts by Lithuanian artist Kestusis Vasiliuinis will be on view at the Emmett Christian Art Gallery on the second floor of the Rockefeller Arts Center from October 26th through October 28th Professor Vasiliuinis is a professor of art graphics department at the Vilnius Academy of Arts, Vilnius, Lithuania. Professor Vasilwinas is an Erasmus Plus visiting faculty in residence with the Department of Visual Arts and New Media until October 30th. Several events are taking place at the Fredonia School of Music, all in the Rausch Recital Hall. The Fredonia World Mallets Ensemble will perform on Friday, October 28th at 8 p.m. The Fredonia Fall Choral Showcase will take place on Sunday, October 30th at 4 p.m. On Monday, October 31st, the Fire and Grace Duo, 
of violinist Edward Hazinga and guitarist William Coulter will be giving master classes from 5 to 7.30 p.m., followed by a concert beginning at 8 p.m. The Fredonia Brass Chamber Music and Brass Choir will perform on Tuesday, November 1st at 8 p.m. The Clarinet Ensemble will perform on Wednesday, November 2nd at 8 p.m. The Flute and Bassoon Ensemble on Thursday, November 3rd at 8 p.m. And the Percussion Ensemble on Monday, November 7th, also at 8 p.m. Also, the 7th Annual Claudette Sorrel Piano Competition will be held Saturday and Sunday, November 5th and 6th. High school students from the United States, Canada, and China will perform and compete for the $4,000 First Prize Award and $4,000 in Smaller Cash Awards. All these School of Music events are free and open to the public. And finally, the Merrin's Chamber Series Dance Concert will take place in the Merrin's Dance Studio in the Rockefeller Arts Center on Friday, November 4th at 7.30 p.m., Saturday, November 5th at 2 p.m., and again at 7.30 p.m. Tickets are $15 for the general public, $7 for students, available at the campus box office. Since 1983, Mike Randall has been gracing the airwaves at WKBW as their weatherman. Now a part-time feature reporter as well as doing the weather on occasion, Mike is well known in the region and nationally for his one-person shows on Mark Twain and Charles Dickens. He'll be bringing his Mark Twain Live show to the 1891 Fredonia Opera House on Friday, November 4th, beginning at 7.30 p.m. It's always a great pleasure to talk to Mike, and this time was no different. Well, I've actually set myself up for an impossible task because I'm about to interview uh, Mike Randall, who is a Western New York uh, TV personality, a longtime weatherman and feature reporter for WKBW, and he does Mark Twain Live. He'll be coming to the Opera House on Friday, November 4th. Uh, welcome, Mike. Always good to have you. Good to be here, Tom. Good to see you, even yeah. with a big beard. <laughs> well you know the audience isn't going to get to see the big beard since it's audio but uh you oh know. no really but, yeah That's really yeah yeah maybe what i'll do is i'll put a picture of myself on and on the on the show notes this this so people can know what you're referring to how's that you have to you know what you really got to do what's that you have to start working on a uh a um one person show of ulysses s grant and uh <laughs> you could do that that'd be awesome there's so much material. That's that's actually an intriguing idea, Mike. And there was a big connection between uh, Grant and Mark Twain. 
and Grant was dying of, uh, I believe it was throat cancer. Uh, he was getting offers from different publishers to publish his memoirs, and they wanted a huge chunk of money to publish his memoirs. And Twain, who had just started his publishing company, went to him and said, look, I'm not going to I'm not going to gouge you. This is what I think I can do. Uh, if you go with me, I'll, I'll uh, do my best to sell it for you. And as it turned out, I think the first royalty check uh, for the book was like $900,000 to his widow, which was unheard of in that time. Wow. And then there was a second. Yeah. And it was a two volume autobiography as well. So, I mean, there's a whole story there between Twain and Grant and Grant was essentially dying at the time, but he wanted to get this, you know, this book finished and uh, Twain came in and rescued him and rescued the family. And that was, I mean, $900,000 was uh, big money in those days. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't do the inflation calculator in my head, but that must, you know, <laughs> that's a couple of million at least. Right. Oh, sure. I would think. Yeah. 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 Definitely. So listen, Mike, um, uh, of course, you're so well known now for doing uh, Mark Twain Live, both in the region and nationally. So the first question I really want to ask you is, are you shooting for Hal Holbrook's record of 60 years doing this? I don't, you know, honestly, I don't know. I never thought and uh, trying to think back to 50 years ago when I first started doing this, I don't think I ever thought I was going to do it more than once. <laughs> I, <laughs> I thought I was going to put together a little show uh, and just kind of have fun with it. And somebody, uh, a principal at Springville Griffith Institute, I think it was my uh, first time I ever performed at a high school. He came down after the show and gave me a check for $25. And my buddy Harry was with me. And uh, I think I was 18 years old at the time, 17 or 18. And Harry looked at me and I looked at Harry and we just kind of went ka-ching, ka-ching. I had no clue that I could make money <laughs> doing a Mark Twain thing. So I don't know. I mean, Holbrook, so impressive, such a, an amazing career. And I mean, honestly, there wouldn't be like 500 Mark Twain impersonators around if it weren't for Hal Holbrook kind of condensing the whole idea of Mark Twain as a lecturer, which he really was. I mean, he really did go on stage and he really did perform. That's why it makes it such a unique, perfect one person show. He did do uh, what you see him doing on stage, not necessarily to that extent. I mean, he didn't really wear a white suit on stage. He didn't really smoke a cigar on stage. There were, you know, certain stories that he told, but, uh, but Holbrook really sort of condensed that whole thing. And Holbrook, um, you know, he, he was sort of like, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's up here and the rest of us are sort of like just kind of floundering down here. I took my kids to see Holbrook uh, in Cleveland. They'd never seen anybody but me do the Twain show. And I took, took them to see Holbrook in Cleveland. And I believe Hal was like 85 at the time. 80, mm -hmm. 85, 86. He's playing Mark Twain at age 70. And here's this 85-year-old man on stage, two hours, doing brilliant work. And I just thought, that's impossible. Because I know what 85 looks like. My dad was 87 when he passed away. I know what that age looks like. And to think that somebody <laughs> could go on stage for two hours and hold the audience in the palm of his hand and make them laugh and 
you know, make them choke up and get teary eyed and, and uh, hear some really great material. Just un- unbelievable that that man was able to accomplish that. And he was, he was 90 before he said, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. Uh, right. So I don't know. I don't know if that record can ever be beat. And, I, and it's certainly not my goal. My goal is just to make it through the next show and the next show and the next show. <laughs> that's always, that's always my goal. Well, um, that's, that's a worthwhile goal. You know, I mean, it's a good way to look at it, I think, but I really should remind our listeners, I think that you started at the age of 17. So, you know, that, that's a, that's a something in your favor. Yeah, it was just a goofy thing. You know, you're a kid in high school and you're playing around with makeup. I used to do Cyrano makeup uh, in the in the uh, in Mr. Starr's room there at Kenmore West. And I never played Cyrano. There was, a, you know, I used to do all these different makeups and things. And uh, my friend Marshall Goldman, who was a year ahead of me, Marshall is an incredibly talented uh, high schooler. He won awards for his student films that he did on eight millimeter film. And he mm-hmm. was very creative. And he was the first one I ever saw actually perform as mark twain and marshall's marshall said uh well if you think that was good you ought to go see hal holbrook so then i did <laughs> you know and then i was like oh my god you know <laughs> i want to do i want to do that i want to put all that stuff on my face and get up there and tell those jokes mm-hmm. and so i did and I, I don't know i mean if i was to do it from scratch now i don't think i could do it i don't think i would have the audacity to do it <laughs> but it was just being a stupid kid like a of course I can do it, you know. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. that gets you a long way, I'll tell you. Now, I know that when you do uh, Mark Mark Twain, you, you you never really do repeat the show. You're always looking for something new and different and 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 and, and there's a richness of material to do that. So what 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 might be a little bit different when you come to the opera house? Well, there are a couple pieces that um I've pulled out over the years when I do um I was the Mark Twain for the Huck Finn Jubilee for about 10 years. And I always tried to make it a point to do something different for, for that, because I think essentially it always seemed like it was about the same audience and the Huck Finn Jubilee, uh, just to fill people in was a big bluegrass festival that they had out in uh, Victorville, California, uh, right near Calaveras County. (laughs) Jumping frog. Jumping frog. There it is. Yeah. And, um, I was the only non-music act there and I would always open the show on a Friday night and then they would have all these, you know, some national acts and some other acts. And then, um, so I would always try to do some new stuff. And, and uh, one story that I pull out, uh, usually this time of year, I did it the other night at uh, West Falls Creative Arts Center is the ghost story. And that was a, that's a, like, I call that one of Mark Twain's greatest hits. It was a story that, uh, was really associated with him. I heard it. I think I heard it first when I was at Boy Scout camp when I was a kid. Uh, it's the Golden Arm Ghost Story uh, about the guy whose wife dies, and you know he goes and buries her, and then he wants that golden arm, so he digs her up, you know. And it's just a, it's just a great little story, uh, especially for you know this time of year, Halloween. Mm-hmm. And um, there's that one. There's one that I found in a magazine called the New York Post. And I want to say I found it 20 years ago that I pulled out. And I just think, you know, there's certain times that it really works well, but it's the Mark Twain for president piece where he talks about the um, the idea of what this country needs as a candidate who cannot be injured by the investigation of his background history. If if you know everything there is to know about a person up front, well, any uh, attempt to spring things on him will be checkmated. 
So I'm going to own up in advance to all the wickedness I have done. So then he goes, he proceeds to explain like, oh, yeah, I did bury my dead aunt in the backyard under the grapevine. But but she was already dead and the grapevine needed fertilizing. And, and I dedicated her to this high purpose. So there's that piece. Um, there's another piece. It's kind of a sad piece. And, you know, a lot of these, a lot of Twain pieces are pretty straightforward. And there's a piece that, um i've worked on for oh i think i did it the first time maybe 15 years ago then i set it aside then i pull it out again then i set it aside but it's a wonderful wonderful little uh insight into his personality and his his personal life when he talks about his daughter susie who uh wrote actually wrote a biography of him when she was 13 years old and it's it's a it's a nice piece, but it, it it's sad because he talks about um, he reads a little excerpt from her book where she talks about they were blowing soap bubbles and her papa, him, Mark Twain, blew tobacco into his soap bubbles. And she talks about how beautiful the bubbles were. So then Twain sort of makes the uh, analogy of, you know, we're all kind of a soap bubble. You know, we get blown out onto the world and we float for a little while showing off our colors and all that. And then we disappear with a, uh, you know, we vanish in a puff, leaving nothing behind but a memory. So then he sort of compares that to how he lost Susie. Susie died and, you know, there's nothing left of her, but a, but a heartbreak and a memory. Mm. So it's a, it's a difficult piece to do because I don't want it to be maudlin. And yet it is him reflecting. I have another piece, um, where he talks about his wife almost the same way that, uh, you know, she's gone now, but uh, he talks about how they got married, you know, how he tricked, how he tricked his way into staying longer for a visit in Elmira and all this. And there are some pieces like that. Let's see what else. Uh, I'm trying to think of another piece that I'm working on that. Uh, oh, I have a, I have a new opening. I can't tell you what it is, but I have a new opening for the show that I, that I've been playing with. So that's good. But but I have to do that for me because I just want to always be present in the moment. And the one way to be present in the moment is not to be doing the same material over and over again. There are a couple things that I always like to do. I always like to do a piece from Huckleberry Finn because I just mm-hmm. think it's so, uh, I don't know, it's just so heartfelt. And it's a, just a classic storytelling. And he did. He told stories from from Huck Finn. And um uh, I'm trying to think, you know, politics and religion and all of that stuff. I uh, that stuff's always included. I, I saw the I saw one of the quotes from you know his uh, secret to journalism: get the facts first, then you can distort them any way you like. Um, That's one of my best laughs. Yes, I, <laughs> and, as well as it should be. And, and, and you're a journalist yourself, so I mean, to a certain extent, it's like the question that I really have is: um, when you're doing Twain, how much of it? when you read it and do it and perform it feels absolutely contemporary to the, to, to, to the current situation. Um, most of it does. And anytime you say anything negative about Congress, uh, that brings the house down, you know, cause it hasn't changed. It has, it just hasn't changed. So I'm going to ask you one last question, uh, I think yes, um, to, to bring this to a conclusion. And that is, um, it, it, you know, as a performer, you become, a, a Twain expert. Uh, what's what's one thing about Mark Twain that you discovered that you never really thought you would discover 
in terms of uh, finding out about him and his work and his life? Well, two things. I'll, I'll tell you one quickly. A lot of people tell me, uh, well, he was an atheist, wasn't he? And I say, well, you know, um, he was raised a Presbyterian. Uh, his wife dragged him to church. But I don't think anybody who was an atheist would spend that much time contemplating life, death, uh, writing about heaven. One of his greatest works is a piece he wrote about Joan of Arc. Uh, I think underneath it all, there was a skepticism, maybe agnostic, wasn't sure, but a lot of us could fall into that category. <laughs> you know, we're mm -hmm. not sure, but just in case we're going to go to church just to cover all the bases. Um, so I don't I don't think he was a hardcore atheist. I never believed that. Another thing is, this is just an oddball thing, because I have read so many things. There was a uh, a time when he was on stage giving a lecture and his nephew wrote about it and talked about his glistening gums. And Twain was plagued throughout his life with two things, bad teeth and carbuncles. I mean, actually to the point where he's laid up in bed with carbuncles. Wow. And um, his teeth, there's a wonderful, wonderful, uh, I could send it to you sometime about his horrible experiences about going to a dentist. And they had just invented that periodontal uh, treatment where they peel your gums back and scrape your teeth and all that. He had to go through all of that. And um, I, I have wonder sometimes if he'd lost a good portion of his teeth. And that's why every photograph you see of him, no smile, no teeth. <laughs> all you see is that mustache. And I'm wondering, you know, and his nephew writing that little thing about his gums glistening. I'm wondering if that poor guy had like no or very few teeth left. Hmm. But. Isn't that a weird thing to think about? But that, it is. It is. Well, I, that's, I asked the question. You gave me the answer. <laughs> <laughs> One can't ask for any, any, anything more. That's, that's great. Well, listen, um, I wish you a lot of luck. Unfortunately, I'm not sure I can see your show. I think I'm on stage myself that same night. So we're well, going to miss each other. Leg. Yeah, and you too. Um, I, I, I know the audiences down here are really going to enjoy it. Everybody enjoys watching you do Mark Train. You do it so well. Uh, you're so experienced, and it's absolutely a great evening in the theater. And thank you for coming down. I know you like to come down to the 1891 Fredonia Opera House. You like playing. I love it. I love yeah. that theater. Yeah. I love it. Absolutely I, love it. People love having you down here. So thanks again. Thanks always for your time, Mike. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope I'll be seeing you soon. Me too. Back at you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, John. Be sure to get your tickets to see Mike as one of America's foremost literary giants on Friday, November 4th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets are $20 for adults, $10 for students. 716-679-1891, www.fredopera.org backslash tickets. As October ends and Thanksgiving draws near, the 1891 Fredonia Opera House would once again love to hear from you about why you're thankful to have the Opera House in this community. November 12th marks the Opera House's 26th anniversary, and we want other people to know why you enjoy and appreciate what the Opera House has contributed to the Northern Chautauqua County region for all these years. As we did last year, we've set up a special number for you to call in and leave your voice message of thanks for the Opera House. Please prepare your message in advance and keep your messages about 30 seconds long so we can get in as many as possible. 
The number to call is 716-608-9802. Once again, 716-608-9802. Information and the number will also be available in the show notes for this podcast. The deadline for recording your message is Friday, November 18th. Your messages will be included with the November 23rd Thanksgiving edition of this podcast. We look forward to your contribution. And that's it for this Sam Hain edition of Notes from the Isle Seat. My thanks to Jolion Pegas, Maria Schleining, Scott Fryman, and Mike Randall for being my guests on this episode. Notes from the Isle Seat is a production of the 1891 Fredonia Opera House in Fredonia, New York. For more information on any of the Opera House events, call the box office at 716-679-1891, visit the website at www.fredopera.org, or email at operahouse at fredopera.org. Notes from the Isle Seat is now available wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and also on the Opera House YouTube channel. If you like this podcast, please consider following us by clicking the follow button on our website at aisleseat.podbean.com and spreading the word through your social media feeds. If you have an arts event you'd like featured on the podcast, why don't you drop us a line at operahouse at fredopera.org and we'll see about featuring your event. Please try to give us a month's advance notice if possible to facilitate timely scheduling. If you have any suggestions, comments, or criticisms of the podcast, just drop us a line at operahouse at fredopera.org. We'll be glad to receive your feedback. Our next episode will be on November 9th, 2022. I'm Tom Laughlin, and until then, be safe out there and be kind to one another. <laughs>